Well, welcome everybody. Welcome home, I would want to say. I hope that it feels like home here this morning. Um, and by that I don't just mean Newcastle, but, but St Thomas's or St Hilda's as well. Um, you, you'll have heard, you'll have you've worked out by now that this is like a temporary space for us. This is um, just a place that we're filling until our building in the Haymarket is, is complete. And I wonder what happens when you think of the word church. I mean, for a lot of people, when they think of church, it kind of conjures up an image of a building in their mind, um, you know, with, with spires and kind of turrety bits. Um, and some people, maybe you think of like particular activities that you've done, or maybe it's something completely different. But, but these stones and, and this furniture in this building, they are not the thing that make this a church. This is just a building and St Thomas's by the Haymarket is going to be amazing but it is just a building. We, brothers and sisters, we are the family of God. We are church. It's the people that make the place, not the other way around. This space is our family home because we're in it, not because we happen to be in this place. It's the people, not the place. So welcome home. Um, We're in the midst of thinking about our family home, which is why I'm yammering on about home. Um, And Brogan kicked us off last week thinking about what family home is about for us at St Thomas's. And he was saying, he was talking to us all about how everybody has a role. Everybody in the family is part of our family home. In fact, the passage that I'm going to be unpacking this morning goes into that and is like a helpful recap. So I'm just going to cut to the chase now and we're going to read together. So if you've got a Bible with you, pull that out. If you don't, grab your phone or whatever you have with you. We're in Romans this morning, um, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. We're in chapter 12 and we're going to start at verse 3 and go all the way through to verse 16. So I'll give you a couple more seconds to find that because I know it always takes me ages. So Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's to If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you hadn't caught it earlier, I am I'm the curate here, which if, if you're not aware of the, the in language, that is just like a trainee vicar. Um, so I am the vicar, um, ordained, but I am still learning the ropes from Ben and all of you, in fact. Um, let's spend some time unpacking what it says in this passage that we've just read. Um, that first section, if you can see it in your Bibles, from about verse 3 to, to verse 8, um, which talks all about the body and um, how we as a family are like a body, how the church is like a body of many parts. Each has a, a role and one role can't be fulfilled necessarily by another part. That is the perfect recap of what Brogan was talking to us about last week. Everybody has a role in our family home. There's something for each of us to do and we are the one to do that. Not something that anybody could do, even if you think that anybody could hoover on a Sunday morning. When you are hoovering on a Sunday morning, that is what you are doing. You could only do it like you could do it. And that is your thing. It doesn't have to be your only thing. Don't worry. So this passage from last week, you know, it's really clear that each part is indispensable. Uh, it's from uh, a letter that, that Paul wrote to, to the church in Rome. Uh, and it's written a couple of years later um, than the passage that Brogan was talking from last week. So Paul is repeating himself. This is important to him. This is important to the church. Rome is a culture where hierarchy is the way it works. You look to your position in society to work out what your life's going to be like and how other people are going to treat you. And that's that. And this flies in the face of that. Paul is saying, no, that's, that's not how it is. It doesn't matter if someone picks up the litter or if someone tells the person to pick up the litter. Everybody has an important role and is indispensable. He addresses that culture with a counterintuitive, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. And the implication there is that if you think of yourself at all highly, you probably ought not to. Where God places someone in a position, that's what it's talking about in verse 3 when it says um, the faith that God has distributed to each of you. When God places someone there, if that position is one of prestige and power, it is God's prestige and power, not the person that fills the position. And the person in the position needs to remember that, but, but so ought we, because the respect we give to those people is not to them, it's to God. It's his prestige and power that they are filling when they fill that role. Whatever we do in in life, in our family, in our work, in the church, we are called to serve. We're called to serve the rest of the body in doing that. We put them first and in so doing, we put God first. When we put God first, we can't help but put others first because that's how he works. That's how Paul starts this chapter. In the verse before we started reading, uh, or in the first verse of the chapter, he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This 
is your true and proper worship. Put God first at the expense of everything, including yourself. That is what it looks like to love God. In essence, what the next few verses go on to do is describe how, out of that, we can do the same to the people around us, not just to God. How we love others with our very being. So the next section, which, which goes, I'm saying, from verse 9 to verse 13, is titled, I think in the NIV, it's titled Love in Action. Because putting others first, in essence, is just loving others. We're called to love people of God. We are called to love. Simply love. But love properly. Love in as pure and sincere a way as is possible, really meaning it. That doesn't mean you have to have a fuzzy, warm feeling and really like everybody. Love is an action that comes out of our love for God, whether we like the people we are loving or not. Hopefully we'll grow to like them as well. But it's not, it's not necessary. If we look in verse 9, it says, love must be sincere. That's what it's talking about. Hate what is evil. Hate is a strong word. I know it's a strong word because it makes people kind of flinch when you say it. They're not quite sure what you're going to go on and say next. But hate what is evil. It's supposed to be a strong word. And then the next word is not quite as strong as it ought to be when we read it in our translation. Cling to what is good. Cling kind of sounds a bit um, wishy-washy to me. It, It... It means to stick fast like a glue. Have you ever glued your fingers together? You will know the moment that you pull them apart and the skin rends from your fingertips, forever sticking to either your finger or your thumb, but definitely not both. Stick fast like glue to what is good. But what does that look like? Next verse. It's really helpful, the Bible. You know, you read it and it just, the verse after verse just explains the one before it. The next verse be devoted to one another in love. That is family done right. We've all been part of families where it doesn't go right. And that essentially is every family, so don't don't worry. But when you think of family and how it ought to be, don't think of your family necessarily. Because I know certainly in my family with my kids and in my family when I was a kid, not everything was done right. But we're talking about family done right. The unconditional mutual affection of the family bond. It looks like serving others so well that you seek to, what it says in the passage, outdo one another in showing honour. Which is not just bigging each other up. You honour people by serving them, by doing the dishes. For example, you honour people by helping them when they don't ask for it, as well as when they do. In another letter in Philippians, um, Paul says, value others above yourselves. That is, that's what we're talking about here when we're outdoing each other in honour. But for the competitive amongst us, and I'm not hugely competitive, my wife Abby will not mind me saying she is hugely competitive, This is a helpful instruction. Direct that competitive spirit towards outdoing each other 
in how we honor one another. Anyone who has ever been at a doorway with a Christian will have experienced this. As we face the after you standoff. I don't know if you've experienced this. You're at the door and the Christian smiles thinking, yes, I can, I can win this one. After you, they didn't realize the other person was also a Christian. Oh, no, no, no. After you, it can last for hours. But that is a joy because we're trying to outdo each other in the way we honor one another. Silly example. But maybe we should take it more seriously. The point remains that it means prioritizing each other above yourself, regardless of the fuzzy feeling of love. That is love in action. And then we ask ourselves, but how? How do we do that? Well, this brings up one of my favorite words in the Bible. Verse 11 talks about zeal. I narrowly uh, missed out on being able to call one of my children zeal. I say narrowly. Abby would say very, very long way missed out. Um, but, but zeal, it, it gets a bad rep as a, as a word. We think of religious zealots, and that makes us think of terrorists or bad things. But being a zealot is actually not a bad thing, right? If you have zeal for a, the right thing... Being a zealot is amazing. What, is, what does zeal mean? It, it, it actually comes from a word, it's talking about being hot, about boiling with enthusiasm for the thing that you're boiling with enthusiasm for. In this case, for God. Be a zealot. Be never lacking in zeal, this says, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You could translate that, stay on fire in the Holy Spirit. Spiritual fervor there. Actually, the word fervor is the one that you would normally translate as zeal. Zeal in the Holy Spirit. Be boiling in the Holy Spirit. Be on fire in the Holy Spirit. The instruction to be zealous in the Holy Spirit, to be on fire with the Holy Spirit. That is a fire that can't help but catch. You're on fire for the Holy Spirit. You rub up against someone else, they will catch it. You don't even have to try. Because it's not you doing it, it's the Holy Spirit. That is how we put others first and we serve one another. It's by being on fire. Putting others first is, is not a particular skill of mine. But when I let the Holy Spirit lead me in serving God, I find it just happens. And it becomes a joy rather than that little bit of resentment you sometimes feel. It becomes inevitable. And it is the way that God loves. Uh, a couple of months, now, uh, a month ago, Abby and I and, and our boys moved 300 miles from Bristol. Josh, it's a great city. You're going to love it. Um, we moved up here. And that was... That was hard. We were super excited to come and we are super excited to be here. We love what God is doing here. We're excited to be part of the family. We see the move that is happening. But it was hard moving up. We left all of our friends behind. We left all of the comfort and support strategies that we'd put in place. And in leaving, we noticed a bunch that we didn't know we'd put in place. We'd gradually built those up and and then they were all gone. And 
it was really hard for our son, not even really understanding the geography of what was going on. That required a lot of love to make that work. But not just the cosy, kind words of telling people that you love them at the end of the day after you've shouted at them all day, but that self-sacrificial, you first, me later, you now, me last, love. We have had to put each other first, and we've had to put God first, and that is how it's worked, and hopefully that is how it will continue to work. Um, The final little bit of our reading today from 14 to 16, those last couple of verses. Um, If you were reading this in the Greek, you might notice a change in tone. I'm presuming most of you are not um, reading this in the Greek. Uh, But this is something where Paul is kind of borrowing from uh, traditional Christian teaching of the time rather than just riffing on his own stuff. Um, And it starts to look slightly more outward rather than just how we interact with one another as a family. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And that sounds like a platitude, right? It sounds like a nice thing. It sounds like something you'd get told to do in school after someone just hit you. Um, It it sounds like something that's great, but not necessarily something we're that into. To bless those that wish you harm, that requires us, ultimately, to relinquish our own sovereignty, I was really pleased myself for including so many big words in that bit. Um, But laying down our right to control how we feel about stuff. And when we become a Christian, we lay that down because God is the one in charge. It requires us to let go of anger and bitterness and to put down our desire to feel those things. When we feel anger and bitter, we sometimes feel we're not in control, we can't help it. It's how we desire to feel those things when we feel angry or upset. It's natural. It doesn't make you um, the worst person in the world. But it's a desire that we have, and we have to lay that down, that sort of right that we feel, and pick up instead God's unquenchable love for every person. There's a hint here at the un- ultimate key that unlocks all of this. Um, which for those that have ever been to Sunday school is Jesus. Yeah, the answer to every question in church is Jesus. He is the ultimate example of the ultimate blessing under the ultimate persecution. He's come to do a good thing, a nice thing, to, to help patch up things with God, to help repair humanity, humanity, humanity's relationship with, with their creator, But we respond in sentencing him to a brutal death. If that's not persecution, then, you know, take a ticket and join the line. But in response, Jesus doesn't do what all of us would have done, I presume, unless you're far better than I am, which was try and get out of it somehow, become angry, etc., etc. In response, Jesus puts us first. Even though he's God and he could... You know, he has the power to just end us. He gives us the ultimate blessing in cancelling our wrongs, in dying so that we don't have to, and in so doing, making a direct relationship with God available to us again. 
What a blessing. And what, what a persecution. Next, we're told, you know, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. This, I think, is something that is hard. Because rejoicing when someone else is rejoicing doesn't necessarily mean you're into rejoicing. We might not be having a happy time and we might not be feeling it, but we're still called to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because they are rejoicing. Not because we are, because they are. They're our family, we're going to rejoice with them. It can be hard, you know, maybe even the subject of their rejoicing is the very thing that's making you not want to rejoice. If you were around over the summer, um, you'll have heard Brogan talk about the lost son. If you weren't, check it out on the, on the podcast. That is something we see in that story. The older brother in that story just can't rejoice with his father over the return of the lost son. Because the very thing that his father is rejoicing about is the thing that's making him angry and he can't let go of that anger. He won't relinquish his right to feel that anger and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. In the same way, we often forget to mourn with those who mourn. Actually, I think a better translation of this would be to weep with those who weep. To cry with those who are crying. There is an anointing for those who can't hold in their tears when they're confronted with someone who's crying. I don't know if that's happened to you when you're, you're talking with someone that they are overwhelmed with grief and though you have had the best day of your life and there is nothing wrong at all, you well up, you can't help it, you feel their mourning. You weep with them. It's a gift from God to weep with those who weep. So... We, we offer our sympathy, great, we do that all the time, and, and, and then we move on and we expect other people to offer sympathy, but, but God loves to rejoice and he also gets sad. If you want a reference to that, look up Jeremiah chapter 8. In our world that can demand a sort of perpetual positivity and a, an eternal enthusiasm, we are called to put a hold on that to mourn with those who mourn. That's how love works in our family. And then finally, the end of verse 16, live in harmony. This is a tricky one to, to translate. Um, I keep talking about translating. This bit of the Bible was originally written in, in Greek, um, but not even the Greek they speak today. So there's a translating that has to go on culturally to work out what it means in a different cultural context but also linguistically, and people that are at least 100 times smarter than me struggle with it. So I'm mostly just repeating what they're saying rather than giving my own opinion. In, if you like, translate it literally, and I quite like this, so I'm going to say it, but it might not make sense to you. It says, the same thing toward one another minding. So like in your mind. So all of you should have the same heart for one another, as one another. So, you, you know, it doesn't always happen in family like this, but in family where it's working right, in family done right, we all love one another and we know what one another are thinking about each other, so many others. 
but we're all wrapped up in the security and safety of being in a family. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, that's pretty obvious what that means. Be willing to associate with people that you wouldn't naturally, that the world says are less than you are. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. Not just wisdom in preference over others, but it's reminiscent of something in, in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, uh, you, you'll probably recognize this, lean not on your own understanding or don't be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, real life. What does it look like to put others first in real life? I can't really tell you how to do it in your own life. And, and I'd put a caveat now on everything that I've said about self-care. So put everyone else first is a dangerous thing to say because you do need to be healthy. Okay, This is not an invitation to allow people to abuse you. This needs to be done from a place of healthy, mutually respecting and reciprocal relationships where you're not the, the person that's always putting everybody else first and they're not ever putting you first. So do this from a safe place. I, I can't tell you how to do it in your life, but I'm sure now as you think about it, you can think of a few ways where you could put others first. Brogan mentioned last week that occasionally on Sunday we can feel more inclined to talk to our friends, those that we know already, rather than the people we recognise haven't been here before. He hinted that that might have a selfish motivation rather than just being because we love our friends. We love them and we want to spend time with them, but as a Christian, we are called, verse 13, we're called to hospitality and to welcome all the strangers. Only talking to our friends in church can be a personal indulgence. So how do we put others first? Let's set ourselves on fire. Small groups are starting soon. Not this week coming, but the, the, week, the week after. I'm personally invested in that. I'm looking at how we, how we do small groups. And sometimes it has been known for some to feel not like, to, to, to feel like not attending a small group. I, I, I get it. Um, sometimes we're tired, but this is our family. It's a safe place. So be safe. Stay healthy, but, but also how can we put others first? Find a small group. Go to a small group. There'll be leaders in touch with you shortly if you haven't um, heard about it yet. Family just works best when we put each other first. So we love, we simply love, we love properly. Family done right is the unconditional mutual affection of the family bond. We should outdo one another in honouring each other. It's a you first, me last, you now, me later kind of love. We do it because Jesus did it and we do it with zeal, being set on fire with the Holy Spirit a fire that can't help but catch.
that's all I've got for us this morning, but I have a sense that God has more. So I'm going to invite the band back up. And Lee and Ben, I feel sure this morning that, um, as it says in this passage, we're called to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to, to weep with those who are weeping. I don't know who's weeping here today, but I'd like to weep with you. I don't know what we're rejoicing about today, but I would like to do a James Brown style whoop with your rejoicing. That's not my natural, my natural style. Thank you, James. That, I think, is what God wants for us today, Ben.